Hello, welcome to today's episode of Juice of the Numbers, your movies and TV podcast. I am your host, Joshua Tracy. And I'm Roger Ebert. I just <laughs> and I'm George Siskel. Um, <laughs> uh, and if you don't get that reference, or if I got the names wrong, fuck you. Um, <laughs> So, uh, yeah, as we as we did last week, we will be doing it again this week, and this will probably be the last week I preface with it, since there's no sports going on in the world right now. Corn and I have converted the Monday edition of this podcast into a um, TV and movies podcast, although we have yet to talk about any television shows. Maybe we can later. But anyway, so we've each watched, um, or we both watched a couple more movies this week, and we're going to talk about them. You ready, Corbin? Yeah. All right, so... Uh, which one did you watch first? Uh, I watched Death of Stalin probably four days ago. I probably watched it the night we recorded the last episode of the podcast, and I watched The Shining three hours ago. All right, then you know what? Let's start with The Shining since it's fresh in your mind, and uh, perfect, I've seen it perfect. a bunch of times, so it's easier. Uh, yeah, this was my first time watching this. Which is, is why I chose crazy, but also yeah. awesome because it gives us a chance to mm-hmm. tap into a fresh opinion. Uh, the Shining was a 1980 movie released by or made by Stanley Kubrick, uh, written for the screen by Stanley Kubrick, based off of a, a Stephen King novel. This film stars Jack Nicholson, Shelley Duvall, Dan Lloyd, and my man <laughs> Scatman Crothers. So. The first opinion I had of this movie was seeing the opening credits, seeing his name, and going, oh my god, Josh will know exactly who this person is, and this is the perfect name for us. Like, this this is such an 80-grade baseball name that I, I knew right off the bat you were just going to love this guy. Oh my god, I live, live for Scatman Crothers' name. It's an amazing name. <laughs> I mean, scat, uh, just, it's just perfect. It's so, perfect. Uh, today is Easter, and we had Easter dinner with my family, and I finished up the movie, you know, five minutes before we sat down for dinner. So, you know, we were talking about it a little bit. Both my parents were taken aback that I had never seen it before. And the first thing my dad said was, when I brought up that I watched The Shining, was, oh, Scatman Crothers? And I was like, <laughs> that is... Like, you are not someone to know names or to know actors and all that outside of, like, your very small circle of influence. I was just put on my ass for the fact that he had Scatman Crothers' name just on the tip of his tongue ready to go. Yeah, just loaded in the chamber. It's just, how do you forget that name? His name is Scat. Well, it's not his actual name, but like his nickname, the the name he goes by, the name he is that is literally accredited to him at the beginning of the film, is Uh Scat Man Crothers. (laughs) It's perfect. It's Uh, perfect. Anyway, character too. Yeah, honestly, like, and the thing is, he's like a good actor. It's not like it's some like you know wonky, weird, bizarro person. He's like, (laughs) he like really kills it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, anyway, anyway um, his, uh, his death was probably the biggest shock throughout the oh, entire movie. Came just out, out of, of nowhere. Like, I knew he was going to die the second he got out of that snow machine, but just the shock of just a full, like 500 foot home run swing. Um, 
just with an axe, just right into his fucking chest. Just oof, out yeah. of nowhere. Um, I guess we should say we'll be spoiling both of these movies because how the fuck do you talk about them without? Although on the one hand, The Shining is <clears throat> forty years old, <laughs> <laughs> tough to spoil. Um, with an even older book, and uh, Deadly Stone has been out for a few years. So if you get upset with us for spoiling a movie that came out. 20 years before I was born. Well, all right, 17 years before I was born. Stop listening. Just, we don't have time for your issues. We don't have time for you at all. <laughs> um, the movie had a projected cost of $19 million and made at the box office $45.7 million. A roaring success. Yeah. So uh, it also has no Oscars nominations, which is kind of interesting. I know horror is like kind of a relatively lesser represented genre at the Oscars, but there's precedent for it. Um, like with um, uh, the, what's that um, William Friedkin one? Um, the Exorcist. Uh, and, you know, this 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 movie has at least, at least two big marquee names under its belt with Stanley Kubrick, who is an Academy darling of sorts, and Jack Nicholson, mm-hmm. who is tied for having the most Oscars for a, a uh, actor in a leading role of for any actor ever so it's interesting it never got any uh it didn't get any love at all but that was... is just ass backwards to me i thought jack nicholas's role was the shining star of this movie like we'll, we'll go into more into my feelings towards this you know as we get through this episode but that like my biggest takeaway was jack nicholson jack nicholas uh just killed it with this role and part of it may be the fact that i kind of felt like he was just being himself and just letting loose but again that's up for further discussion but he was far and away my favorite part of the movie yeah this is this is also like peak uh jack nicholson for doing what he was uh for reference the 1981 academy award winners for best actor which is the category that um jack nicholson would have been in uh the winner that year was robert de niro for raging bull which makes sense uh the other nominees were john hurt for the elephant man who goddamn that movie was amazing robert duvall for the great santini jack lemon for tribute peter o'toole for the stunt man so that is a that's a that's a that's a tough category right there i Um, might give jack nicholson the win over de niro and raging bull Ah, uh, it's so tough because those are like two classic movies we're talking about right. here. Um, but the fact that he wasn't even nominated is tough. Bullshit is bullshit in the well, most refined form. What's really bullshit is the best picture category that year, which is a rough category for like if you look back at history, because usually there's always a better movie in the nominations than there is for the winner. So I'll give you the nominees for that year, and I want you to pick the winner. Uh, the nominees in the 1981 Best Picture category, Raging Bull, The Elephant Man, The Coal Miner's Daughter, Ordinary People, and Tess. Um, I'm gonna... S- I would personally pick Raging Bull. Of course. I feel like Elephant Man won. Neither. It was Ordinary People. Oh, God. And I don't know if you've seen Ordinary People. I have seen Ordinary People because I tried... Um, I've I've tried over the years to watch all the best picture nominees I could, and it is a good movie. Uh, but I mean, goddamn, Raging Bull, Elephant Man, and Coal Miner's Daughter are all better movies. 
And I'm I mean, not even like a huge Coal Miner Daughters fan. Don't get me wrong, like Raging Bull is not close to being my favorite film by either De Niro or who directed it? Spielberg? Raging Bull? No, it was uh, Scorsese. Oh, God. Yeah, uh, definitely not up there for Martin Scorsese or Robert De Niro. Um, I kind of wasn't a fan of it, but I will fully admit that it is a better movie than Ordinary People. Yeah, yeah. You know, you, you know what? You know what my thought process was right there. Well, I know Steven Spielberg directed that black and white movie, Schindler's List. So clearly, <laughs> this black and white movie had to also be fucking Spielberg. Yeah, yeah. I see how I, you can uh, get myself that. with my with my brain sometimes. <laughs> All right. So, what were uh, what was your first impression of this of this film? Since, since this is your first time watching it, what are some of the main takeaways you took from it? I thought. A lot of the, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Like the the supernatural elements were just, I get that that was a driving force behind what was going on in the movie. I didn't really feel like it added too much to the narrative. I felt like, okay, this is on an Indian burial ground. Sure. Which of Uh, course it is. Yeah, like that's just classic easy trope to have. Um, But there was no real reasoning behind why anything specific was happening. And while I get that very easily could have been the point that Kubrick was making and was a factor in why this movie was as effective as it was, you know, in 1980, uh, it didn't do it for me. Um, It's, I like to have, you know, it doesn't need to be straightforward narrative. But I'd like to be able to make sense of it at either the end of the movie or with some added reference material. Um, and I just felt like there was a lacking overall connection between all of it, which, you know, I very easily could say that I am in the wrong here. Well, maybe not in the wrong, but I'm missing a major point that Kubrick was trying to portray. But it's just it didn't do it for me uh, the way it does it for you know both of my parents and so many other people that just adore this movie. Um, yeah, it just it wasn't there. So I am a big fan of this movie as I'm a big fan of like damn near every cubic cubic film. Um, did you read the book? I didn't. I didn't read the book. I have. It's been a long ass time, so I'm gonna be troubled to to uh recall too too much of it but um the the book shed some additional light as as well as some background on the on the book itself so this film well again this book is meant to be representative of Stephen King and his battle against his own alcoholism mm-hmm. and with Jack Torrance representing him and the evil forces that are trying to kind of take possession of him being again, representative of Stephen King's alcoholism. So if you think about it from that perspective, if if you add that context, maybe I think it becomes a little bit more clear, um, or it can at least give a little bit more guidance to what is the story is doing on the other hand. I, one of the things I think makes the abstractness of a lot of what happens work is that, Jack, as he goes through, it's his descent into madness and mm-hmm. his susceptibility to what's going on. And it 
kind of slowly creeps up on him from certain different weird ways and he's come to just either accept or embrace and not really give too much thought about anymore and his eventual acceptance and conversion into the mode of thinking that the sentient body that is the hotel starts to lend itself to is, is that's that's how he eventually goes down the hole that he goes down mm-hmm. i i so subjectively the supernatural stuff is a big gripe for me and that was my biggest takeaway objectively jack's descent into madness um i thought was i don't want to say poorly acted but poorly portrayed because from the first scene he is in immediately it was like oh this guy is already off some deep end he is clearly you know not well mentally and is just you know, it's been 40 years since this came out. I've grown up with people talking about this movie. I knew where the movie was going uh, and overall plot point. But there was no hiding the fact that Jack Torrance was going to go crazy at any point in this movie. Oh, yeah. No, the, the, reading in, first, the first note I have in my notebook is Jack Nicholson is creepy off the bat. Yeah, but being creepy but being normal is one thing. I just felt like there is no hiding the twist of this deep dive into his own, you know, whether it be alcoholism or just this mental instability. I just feel like it was laid bare just from scene one. Um, Like that interview scene, uh, you can tell he is not a well put together human being. And it didn't really just translate well to in my mind, a good story arc because you could see it coming three miles away. And I was reading into, you know, how Stephen King reacted to this movie oh, he uh, hated when it, it came out. And yeah, that was one of his biggest gripes among many was that you picked a guy like Jack Nicholas. Yeah, of course he's going to go crazy. He's a fucking psychopath in real life, let alone in his acting, especially coming off one flew up over the cuckoo's nest. Everyone could kind of see that coming, and that was kind of a, all right, I get that they were trying to show this dive into madness, but compared to my personal favorite movie, Apocalypse Now, I thought that is on just a whole nother mountain compared to this showing the collapse of someone's mental state. Part of the problem I think that you're getting at here is that the there's a lot that happens in the book. And obviously with a book, you have more room to take your time. Whereas with all of the things that happen in a movie, there just isn't necessarily, and this movie is already long. It's already two hours, hours, 20 minutes, minutes. 20 minutes. Yeah. So like they, I think, I think you're right. Like Jack Nicholson, as I, as again, my first note is here. Jack Nicholson is creepy off the bat. He is, he, he, he is an unhinged character from the jump, which, um, I don't particularly mind as much. I can see why you would have that complaint. Um, but I think it might just be born out of the fact that, uh, one, Kubrick was clearly heavy-handed, um, mm. as Shelley Duvall is also unhinged. <laughs> like, she looks frail as fuck from the moment go. Um, mm-hmm. But I, it's, I think it might also just be because you gotta move it forward. And and there's some scenes yeah. from from the book that are missing in the movie that I would have loved to see in this movie. Um, one of, 
an early an early moment that is the first one of the first things that leads Wendy, Shelley Duvall's character, to question how things are at the hotel is um, you know what topiary is big you know mm-hmm. uh, bushes and trees shaped to look like animals or objects or whatever, uh, and it, the the hotel's supposed to have animal shaped topiary, and in the in the book like it it continually is moving around and like. You know, Wendy looks away and she looks back over and the topiary is shifted. And then as the book progresses, it starts looking at her, you know, um, mm-hmm. there's a really, really great scene where after one of the big snowfalls, when the snow is like several feet deep, um, Danny gets uh, like digs this like little tunnel system in the snow. And um, he's like, just, like kind of working his way around his little tunnel and he like feels something behind him. And like he's, he's like starting to scramble to get out, but the, he's too low down. He can't tunnel straight upwards. So he has to like go back through his tunnel and there's not enough room for him to like turn around to see what's behind him, but he feels like there's something there. And you like, no, that's terrifying. Oh yeah, absolutely. And it's, there's not nothing there. in this movie that came close to that level of fear that you just described in like a sentence and a half. And one of the other big, big things that it got a passing comment from, from Scatman Crothers. Love that name. Um, but is a much, much bigger part of the book is that the evil force that eventually overtakes Jack isn't this whole spiritual weird thing that the movie portends that it is. It's the hotel. Scatman Crothers says, you know, some buildings have the shining just like some people do. Again, a passing comment in the in the movie, but one of the central themes of the book is that it's not just these weird spirits that were sat there because of the Indian burial ground. It's that this actual building is what's evil because the building represents the alcoholism, which you don't get as much of in the film because they're really leaning on the whole ghosts narrative, which is mm-hmm. fine. I understand that's easier to literally show, but you lose some of it. And it also then changes the ending. So yeah. just to jump ahead a little bit, and I'm sorry, I'm talking a lot. I promise I'll stop soon. Um, the, the movie ends with Jack Nicholson getting lost in the maze, trying to chase down Danny and then freezing to death. Um, the, the book ends with Jack Torrance getting lost in the maze and forgetting that one of his key responsibilities that gets brought up in the book several times that never gets brought up in the movie is that the main part of his job is to watch over the boiler room because it's like an old boiler system and the, it overheats all the time and you have to go down there and maintain it. And mm-hmm. that's that's the main reason they needed someone to be at the hotel. There is like the one off scene where uh, Shelley Duvall's character is looking over a boiler and that is the only time that yep. is brought up. Yep, that is it. Uh, Danny also frequently goes down to the boiler room um, in the book and gets scared because there's like a furnace there that looks really scary and you know like shouts at like shouts at him kind of thing uh yeah pretty much um anyway so jack torrance in the book forgets that he had he's been so busy trying to you know kill his family that he forgot to maintain the boiler room and he starts sprinting he sprints back into the hotel after he manages to get out of the maze instead of going to go chase down his family but the, it's too late. The boiler is already overheated. It started a big fire, and the book ends with the hotel exploding and killing him. And that's meant to represent him getting engulfed by his alcoholism and losing that battle. But again, you don't get that in the movie. There's, 
the the so, main symbolism of the book is kind of lost in this. So clearly Stephen King had such a deeper grasp on this story, you know, obviously than Stanley Kubrick did who wrote this screenplay while they were filming. Um wrote, you know, a lot uh big chunks of the story while they were filming and the sets and everything were designed around what he was writing in real time. I just I get that the story of The Shining from the book is this very deep, very layered um, introspective by King that just from you like talking about it for two minutes makes me want to read this book terribly badly. Um, awful grammar sentence, I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> none of that shows in the movie, and I just I don't want to give the movie credit where it doesn't earn it. So like The Martian is my favorite book I've ever read. Um I love that story to death. I think it's beautifully written, you know, super funny, just very deep character um characters, excuse me. And the movie doesn't quite get there, but I don't hold the movie up higher because the story from the book is so good. And I get like, you know, portraying that or projecting that onto the movie because you've read the story and you know the background and you can add those layers and that knowledge while you watch it from that past material. But just watching it blind without reading the book, without seeing it before, you just, you get none of that watching the movie. And I, that is why, you know, in my mind, this isn't all that great of a movie. I, I don't really care for this all that much. I, you know, the biggest thing I love is uh, Jack Torrance's character. And that's really the only thing I, I really like about this. Um, I also love Shelley Duvall's acting in this. I think she does a phenomenal job of being, of being, of being terrified. I'll put it that way. Yeah, that's it's like it's a the very, only thing she has. It's a very simple role that she does probably better than anyone else I've ever seen in a horror movie. Like, oh, yeah. I know there's a stereotype of like, oh, the actress is there to give the horror scream and that's it. Um, her character is, I think, the peak of that. Um, it's still a stereotype, don't get me wrong, but it's just, it's perfectly done. Um, and the acting, I think, all around was very, very good. And the characters and the casting in this was just mwah, perfect. Yeah, I would say from, from technical standpoints all around, as mm. most Kubrick oh, films yeah. are, great the cinematography was wonderful i thought the score for this was excellent oh unbelievable i know unbelievable. So good. um just the it was electric like it was an electric organ uh and uh, what was the i forgot to write it down it was like nails on a chalkboard at certain points when it really yeah. got tense and i was just that hit me so much harder uh than really what was going on in the scene like the the score made that movie uh, scary. One other thing I would like to add from the book um, that I so, so, so wish was in this movie is, so when Shelley Duvall goes down to the Great Hall to confront Jack with the baseball bat, because mm -hmm. she's scared, um, you know, and then she, like, backs up down the, back up the stairwell with Jack, like, taunting her basically or editing her on or whatever you want to say just before you go on 
that scene was my favorite in the movie. It's a great scene. Now I'm going to make it even better for you or want to tell you what it could have been. In the book, she doesn't go downstairs with a baseball bat. She goes downstairs with a polo mallet. And <laughs> in the book, Jack Torrance gets the polo mallet away from her and beats the shit out of her going up those steps. Wow. While doing all the things Jack Nicholson was already doing. His like monologue. Yeah, like n- not verbatim, obviously, but he's like giving her gruff while also like like mm-hmm. I think she like breaks a leg and like breaks an arm, and that's what makes the escape wow. later on even more terrifying. And in fact, he never he never has an axe in the book. He breaks down the door with that polo mallet. <laughs> like uh, I that's will how say that. crazy and aggressive it like granted, that's maybe a tad out of the realm of what could actually happen, but like that's like that's what I'm saying. There, there's bits and pieces missing that make this that would that could have made this the masterpiece some people talk about as is. Don't get me wrong, I really like this movie. Where I know which which is a the a point that we are going to disagree on because I know you I don't care for it, but it's because I have some of the filler for these holes you keep mentioning. Right, right. And if they if it just had some of the like that basic thing of switching it from being scared, defenseless um shelly duvall with a mm-hmm. bat that she never seriously uses nor even holds correctly um into being actually a very strong character very strong wendy in the book who just gets disarmed and then fucked up like it's that's a big difference thematically yeah uh i mean i don't want to say i don't care for this film i just am disappointed with how much potential it lets get away it does. It's, um, it's a shame. I I would love to see how different this movie would be if it wasn't Stanley Kubrick directing. Um, I honestly would love to see a a remake of this, although I can't imagine that being well received, just because of how much this has been ingrained in you know pop culture and just how many people love this movie to death, and it's just. It's, you know, my mom was talking about it like she, it was a cornerstone of her childhood. Like it's something that she said she thinks about to this day in like certain rooms and in certain situations. Like she'll get scared at, you know, a bank because it reminds her of a room from The Shining that she saw 40 years ago. Um, and, you know, she was saying like, oh, you'll carry this movie with you, you know throughout your adult life and i was like i guarantee you i won't but (laughs) i would love to have that experience because i want to have that experience with this movie i was going into this and not with the expectations like this would be an all-time favorite movie of mine just that it would portray this story that i've known from you know from a distance just super well it would portray it and i would get a connection to these characters and see this deep dive into jack torrance's collapse and it doesn't really get past surface level you know in my mind and that was just it was disappointing i i could i can see i i've heard similar things from some from from, from people too I, I could see some aspects of why it might hold up for people in like, like, like last with people. I think one of the biggest things is actually a point I was going to make anyway, that might make it so stuck in people of our parents' generation's age is that the set work 
feels mm-hmm. so true to the time period it was shot in, which you don't always get from horror films. A lot of times they'll be like dingy old, you know, cabins in the wood or like some old decrepit mansion or something. No, this was like super modern for the time in terms of its layout. Like the super vibrant colors, all the weird furniture, the tacky right, wallpaper, right. the weird carpeting. Like it was one it, kind of fun to look at because that shit looks terrible, but it was like in style, which is hilarious. Um, but also, like I could see why you, you might have a pro- like that. Uh, the carpet used for the for the hallway uh, it, when, when that, that yeah. go. That's a super famous carpet. Oh yeah, I, you I, see it everywhere now. Yeah, and I bet if you know if you saw this movie when you were like first watching horror movies when you're like I don't know fifteen or sixteen or you know I guess because that was the the you know the seventies and eighties you can't just like watch an, a Netflix R rated film on on your laptop without your parents knowing like you can now um, then like you know I could see how with just how modern and current it felt hairstyles outfits everything mm-hmm. I could see how it could sit with you but yeah it, it certainly I don't think about it when I'm at a bank. I uh, can't think of the last time I was at a bank. <laughs> uh, I'm right there with you. I genuinely don't know that answer. But uh, like you said, like with the lighting, when was the last time uh, you saw a horror movie that was brightly, vividly lit? Um, I'm sure there's a lot more now, but especially in 1980, that's unheard of. And I think that's why it was so effective because it lowered a lot of people's guards watching this movie. Like you don't expect it to be as, I don't want to say scary because it wasn't scary, scary. It was, it just creepy is what I saw and have seen people say about it. And I think that's very spot on. Um, And you just don't expect that from the way that movie was shot. I am with you. I definitely feel like I had something else to say and don't know what it is. So I guess we can move towards wrapping up the yeah, I mean, shining discussion. Anything else you want to say about it? It's a Stanley Kubrick movie. It's has a very Stanley Kubrick feel. Uh, the things that he does well, he did very well in this. I just think, you know, writing a script as you're shooting a movie, I can't say has ever been a recipe for success and i think that was a big issue with this and i just uh yeah final thoughts final feelings i am just disappointed with it fair enough watch it because it's in the ether of uh cinema and filmmaking but don't make this your first stanley kubrick film oh no 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 what what would be your stanley kubrick recommendation um 2001 a space odyssey i feel like is really acceptable or sorry um uh, accessible like a clockwork orange is tougher because it's so abstract and weird and gross at parts um uh dr strangelove is really good but black and white might throw a lot of people off and again it's a comedy but it's a very subversive comedy so it might not also you know be as acceptable or accessible so probably a space uh 2001 a space odyssey but um I, th- I think actually my first one might have been full metal jacket i think i might have watched that before 2001 my um, first one was clockwork orange which it's a, was a that was getting thrown into the ring of stanley kubrick pretty quick um yeah. but i i love that movie 
uh, I really book. appreciate Clockwork Orange, but I I have to say Full Metal Jacket just because that is so much up my alley, and I just You're appreciate it on guy. so many. Yeah, it's just such a well done, just quintessential Vietnam War. I, I don't want to say propaganda, but experience, I guess I'll say. Oh, it's definitely not propaganda. They don't have a great time. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, what's your favorite Kubrick, Kubrick film? Ooh, um, I'd have to say Full Metal Jacket. I really like Doctor Strangelove. Um, I, I don't think I've ever seen 2001. I think that's really? still on the list of like movies I'm extremely disappointed to tell people I haven't seen just because I've never gotten around to it. And that might be like peak of shamefully haven't seen uh, you you should definitely watch it because it's again going to be one where if you don't look up anything afterwards, I will have to fill in gaps for you. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But it's also very, very good. I yeah. love that movie. Just visually, it's just beautiful. Which is um, why I, I want to watch it so bad. I would... Uh, 2001 is such a great fucking movie. Paths of Glory, I think, is a very underrated Stanley Kubrick film. Now, that might really be up there for me, but I will probably settle in on Doctor Strange Love. Paths of Glory is something that has kind of passed me by. Uh, and then once, you know, Kirk Douglas passed away this year, I kind of went back to look at things that I would know him from. And seeing clips from that movie make me uh, really, really excited to watch that. It's really good. I, I, I think, again, it's like kind of an understated Stanley Kubrick film. And I think you'll get that when you watch it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I really love that movie. I think it's I think it's phenomenal. Um, also, if you get a chance, The Killing, which is the movie that came out, uh, the Kubrick's film that came out right before it, also a very like non Kubrickian Kubrick film, uh, is also very good. Hmm. Yeah, again, just doesn't feel like him at all. It feels very very vintage, which it is. It's from 1956, but like I, it's got it's 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 a good movie. I think I think you would enjoy. it. Yeah. Uh, do you want to give this one a rating? Uh, yeah. I will give it. I'll give it three out of. Wait, are we doing it out of four or five? I forget. Uh, out of five. Out of five, I'll give it three out of five. Really? Yeah. Huh. Okay. Uh, I'll give it a two and a half out of five. Fair. That's kind of where I figured you'd go. I want to give it a little bit of extra because I I, I think the acting's really good in it, and it does carry a marquee name in, in the director's category, which. I, I'm not saying it makes it better, but I'm saying it makes it probably more worth a watch, if, especially if you're a completionist when it comes to director repertoire. Um, if I had to go strictly based on um, quality of film itself, I'm probably in between two and a half and three, but the names involved, I'll give it a three. I genuinely was thinking about giving it a three, uh, and I just thought you were going to give it a uh... In the four range, uh, in the four spectrum somewhere. So. No, no. I know what it is. You know Fair what enough. I mean? Yeah. All right. Then uh, let's get into Death of Stalin. Have you Had you seen this before your watch um, uh, the other day? Uh, I saw it when I was less than fully mentally available and did not remember much of it. So it's kind of like a fresh watch, but I kind of also knew the style and, you know, tone that I was getting into. All right. So 2000, sorry, Death of Stalin came out in 2017. It is an 
Armando Iannucci film. It was written and directed by him, along with a co-writing credit for Dan Schneider, David Schneider, not Dan Schneider, David <laughs> Schneider, and uh, five additional people, which is just too many to read. Uh, it has a, t- a huge cast. It's definitely an ensemble. There is, I don't think anyone you could pick out as being a true, true leading actor. Um, but we get uh, such names as Jeffrey Tambor, um, Steve Buscemi, Michael Palin, um, and then a bunch of people whose names I don't know, but you might. Um, Adrian McLaughlin, Olga Korylenko, Tom Brook, Patty Cons. Considine, I'm so sorry to everyone involved in this. Um, it was not nominated to any for any Oscars. Oh yeah, forgot about him. Um, but it was nominated for it was not nominated for any Academy Awards, but it was nominated for two BAFTA Awards, uh, Best Screenplay Adapted, and Outstanding British Film of the Year. Um, it uh, where was I going with this? Oh yeah, it had an estimated budget of 13 million and brought in 24.6 million box office um and that is all the technical stuff i have in a runtime of 107 minutes this movie must i have in my one of my notes for this for this movie is um this script must have been huge because it is nothing but dialogue yeah it it genuinely was not something that i was expecting uh, both the style of humor was a little off from what I was expecting, um, but just nonstop dialogue was just oof. Like I didn't mind it, but it definitely were points was points where I kind of lost focus because there's only so much conversation listening you can do in two hours, and that I like. It's not something I'm holding against the movie. I'm holding it against myself for not giving this the absolute undivided attention i know it deserves it's great so armando iannucci as i just mentioned he this film was nominated for several bafta awards which is the you know the the british oscars basically he is british and this carries a very british sentimentality when it comes to comedy and discourse um Mm -hmm. so that being the case which is one of the reasons michael palin's in it which made me so happy i love michael palin if you're unaware of who michael palin is he's from monty python um, and a few other British comedies like A Fish Called Wanda, which is hmm. phenomenal, phenomenal, phenomenal movie. Um, so it was really nice to see him in, in here. But it, it's it's subtle. No, no, it's not like like this. All right, I'll, I'll, I'll do it this way. This is like the British version of um, the interview, that Seth Rogen movie where he like him and Jason or James Franco go to like interview um, Kim Jong-un. You know, mm-hmm. that would be like the American version of this movie where it's like big jokes played for big laughs. This is a lot of dialogue that's played for like chuckles and acknowledgement of comedy. You know, you know what I mean? Yeah, I felt like watching this, uh, there were more like snorts than there was like actual laughter. Just exactly. because I like my the biggest note I have on here is just the visual humor that is just. I don't want to say it's Edgar Wright levels of uh, visual humor, but it's just they set things up so well that it's just natural. Everything is just naturally funny. It's not, you know, set up punchline, set up punchline. It's just naturally. It's just the situations that they're in and just the way these characters act and how they portray themselves is fucking hilarious. 
Yeah, I mean, you, you got a bunch of guys in suits standing around and unconscious, having pissed himself, Stalin lying on the on the floor. Uh, and you got the one guy like, so I'm I'm the only one dealing a piss then. Like that's <laughs> that's hilarious. Oh, uh, um, when they uh, it, when they call for the doctor and the doctor's just out walking his dog, and you just see this truck drive up behind him in the shot, and all these soldiers get out. This woman points at the doctor. He notices and just starts this like brisk little jog with his dog as these soldiers just run him down. I just, I don't know what it was about that scene. Just the visual of this essentially 90 year old man just jogging away from Russian soldiers was fucking killed me. Oh, so good. So good. So this film is about exactly what you think it is. It is about the death of Stalin <laughs> and how the um, government officials, or at least high-ranking members of the government of the Soviet Union, deal with that. Um, it is a comedy based upon the concept that everything is so ludicrous. The amount of power everyone wields is ludicrous. The keeping up with appearances is ludicrous. The... Um, order and procedure behind everything is ludicrous and that's what feeds into a lot of the comedic nature of this it's like a lot of comedic moments come out of this because someone is said something that benefits like their personal interest or reflects better um their personal interests but goes against stalin or is sounding unfavorable towards stalin or against mother russia and someone calls them out on it and they have to like phrase what they just said in a more like pro-Russia or pro-Stalin um, uh, facet. And, you know, that ends up being played for laughs. But it, that's probably, <laughs> I would guess, relatively accurate how it was. Because uh, what, like one of my notes here is, um, I want to find it. Man, no one gives a fuck about anything that's happening. <laughs> <laughs> like, <laughs> like, like, like when, when, when Khrushchev has to plan out the... Um, the funeral he's just fucking mad that he's like not doing other shit like no one no one fucking cares (laughs) the it's just so funny that you know you were kind of touching on this just a movie based around the death of stalin the death of stalin is the least important like plot point of this movie oh yeah like yeah they care because he is dying but him dying is the least cared about aspect of that it's really just uh, like like the um the the uh, the, the starter's pistol for all this mm-hmm. ridiculousness it all of all most of which was probably happening already um you know they and they were just bracing for when this moment was going to happen um i like that this film doesn't have anyone trying to do accents i find that really annoying and greatly prefer when when you're like look we know it's russia we understand it's supposed to be russia we don't think that there's actually like an italian man from new york in the russian government (laughs) you know like we understand that steve buscemi is steve buscemi but he's supposed to be nikita kucherov like that's fine or nikita khrushchev i always forget which one it is doesn't matter khrushchev Uh, now i'm second guessing myself but Eh, russia doesn't matter Uh, Uh, russian heads of state who cares so yeah, I mean, what are what what do you think about the whole natural accents? Just come as you are. I I definitely appreciate it. Um, in a drama where you're trying to, you know, immerse yourself into the narrative, 
I can appreciate it more, but it's never been a, a major factor. Uh, unless it's, you know, poorly done, then it's just detrimental. Um, but for a comedy like this, being able to have that comedic timing where you don't have to deal with actors having to force accents makes it just a streamlined process, makes it so much easier. And honestly, I think it helps make funnier, funnier um, phrases and funnier lines funnier. God, I'm bad with words. <laughs> no, no words. Um, but yeah, I, 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 I appreciate that they didn't force anything. Agreed. Um, I wrote down that everyone seems to be super incompetent while also very duplicitous. Um, because everyone, it's it's true. Everyone, some some more than others. Um, like I wrote down also here. Um, I love this version of Dick Cheney because. <laughs> Uh, Bari, whatever the fuck his name is, is like so, so Dick Cheney. It's crazy. Yeah. Um, uh, but like, especially like, since I watched uh, Vice, the recent Vice movie, not too long ago, it was you know the was it juxtaposition was yeah uh, very very humorous. But like you have you know you have characters like him who seem like very on top of things, but then you have characters like Jeffrey Tambor's character who's like a fucking <laughs> idiot, you know. Oh God! Him playing an idiot is just such a natural character for him. I know. I feel so bad saying <laughs> that, but it's true. Um, but yeah, like that opening scene with uh, Berea, where he's the first one on the scene, and then as they knock on the door to come in, he's like moving around the room, positioning himself to look the most casual and distraught. Just it's there's so many golden scenes in this, and just perfectly. I don't know if it's the acting, if it's the writing, if it's a mixture of both, but just it, everything comes together so perfectly. Uh, yeah. I mean, like, like, like the scene you were just talking about with, with all the fucking keys. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> like, like that's hilarious. And it's, uh, you know, there's nothing ridiculous happening where it's out of the realm of possibility. Like it's not past that. Um, oh God, I'm forgetting another phrase, but uh, it it's, not outside of expectations of what could actually be happening. Like you could totally see a paranoid Joseph Stalin needing seven keys to get into a single, honestly, easily broken into just desk where he keeps everything. Yeah. That, that would have taken anyone who was trying to get a very shocking little time. Um, this is this movie is very much so in Armando Iannucci's wheelhouse. If you know anything about his um, history of screenwriting, this fits perfectly into it. He also made In the Loop in 2009. Uh, he was the creator great of the movie. series Veep, which is the uh, a great HBO series. Um, mm-hmm. I highly recommend. So he, this is certainly very he much so. A, uh, what he is a like I think it's Cloud Nine, uh, a new show on HBO that just came out, starring uh, Avenue Dude Five. Hugh Laurie, Avenue Five. Wow, Cloud Nine, Avenue Five. Good one. That's um, okay. I said, um, I said Avenue Q to my mom when I was trying to think of what it was, <laughs> and she was like, "Nope, that's uh, that's not that." And I was like, "Yeah, yeah, I got it." Um, have you seen any of that yet? I have not. I keep meaning to, and then keep right. just not doing it. Yeah, like every time I log into HBO to watch it, I remember that I'm in the middle of watching The Wire on HBO, and it's just like I can't do two on the same platform. 
Yeah, I'm currently showing Cal on the Wire, Cal the Wire on HBO right now, and it's just like I'm gonna watch that instead. And yeah. Insecure comes back tonight, y'all. If you guys watch Insecure, it's a great show. Highly recommend. Um, anyway, this movie's tough to break down into its finer points because the plot mm-hmm. is, I'll actually say, kind of monotonous in a way, but in like a good way. Like it's it's consistent. It's everyone trying to do this one thing: gain power in Russia after the death of Stalin. And that's the entirety of the movie. So it's tough for Cora and I to probably really sit here and break down like individual plot points without getting into the super nitty gritty of mm-hmm. what's happening in this film because it's almost entirely dialogue. And again, the common thread throughout the entire movie is the same as it is 10 minutes in. Everyone's <laughs> trying to get power after Stalin dies. So in that respect, I was wanted to bring up a couple of... Um, I'll say bigger picture points. Um, I think like, like I think that the gaggle of, of government leadership dudes trying to all carry Stalin's body over to his bed (laughs) and just being fuck awful about it was like a really great metaphor for the quality of leadership and how the rest of this movie is going to go. Just like through, uh, I don't know if it was the Kremlin or like his personal house, but just amongst all these people, just six, seven men carrying a dead body just haphazardly throughout the house. Because they forgot to unlock the door to the bedroom before they picked him up, so they had to go the long way. It was ridiculous. Like it was, rid- and then like they, um, they they forgot to get some guys out of the way, so like two dudes had to have the dead body oh, of Stalin yeah. all over them. Like <laughs> it was hilarious. And I'm looking at it. I'm like, this is this is like the the eight. I don't know how many dudes were there. The eight most powerful men in all of Russia, and they can't do anything. Uh, the note I have on that scene is that the two dudes who are in the most power and who are in the, I guess, the two best positions to gain control of the country, um, Steve Buscemi and Berea, I forget the actor's name, um, are arguing over who gets the head and who gets the feet, which are both the least important things to carry because they are both the lightest and you can watch them as they carry them. They are putting in the absolute least amount of work. I just thought that was very like it's one of those visual jokes that no one brings it up. It's not a punchline for anything. You just notice it and laugh because it's it's so fitting to these characters. Oh, I know the the jokes were so well tailored. Now, what the uh, fuck do I know about about funerals? <laughs> um, I also have Our, here when I, they're sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, no, you go. When they're at the funeral and. They're trying to switch spots so that they're better, <laughs> yeah, like they can talk to people better. And they're just like, we can make it look like part of the ceremony. Standing as guards, they're just stepping back and forth. And then the one guy telling him, I, I don't want to say it because I am so bad at retelling these jokes that it's going to ruin it for when you, if you ever go back to watch it. So that's a great scene. I'm just going to leave it at that. <laughs> I can respect it. Uh, at the same time with that, uh, another big picture moment or, or big idea moment, maybe, that I had was um, when Khrushchev changes the uh, orders and lets the citizens of Russia come ba- uh, use the trains again and regrants access to Moscow. And then there's like a huge killing scene 
where like 1500 people die um i thought that was also a a great representation of how this brutality is like partly you know they're joking around about it and like they're making light of it because these guys just don't give a fuck not because it's not serious just because they don't give a fuck but like you know they these are people who are like debating about actions that are going to be killing thousands of people because it's russia it doesn't take much to kill a person in russia um and that's like the actual consequence of all they're wheeling and dealing you know like mm-hmm. there's there the, the 1500 people they were willing that or that that died in the streets to, to of moscow were like they, yeah they were cool with that yeah nobody cared like it was something that was brought up but nobody actually gave a shit at any point yeah no mildly inconvenient at, at worst well, it's a good thing that there's no way to use that as representation of what's going on in politics at all. So, you know. Yeah, why wouldn't they just issue a stay-at-home order? <laughs> uh, did you have any of those kind of type of moments that stuck out for you in this? Um, man, nothing that I have notes on. Um. It's hard it's hard to go back and think of those moments because they were downplayed so much. It's not something that was focused on and I you know by you know by what they were trying to do that was forgettable. Yeah, um, I, I, like we said earlier this movie uh is dialogue heavy so it moves a mile a minute and the plot is constant throughout the film. So like only reason I'm I was looking for those moments is because I'd seen the movie already and mm-hmm. I, I knew I wasn't going to be writing down these fucking jokes. <laughs> um, yeah. So I guess like the, so just looking over my notes now, uh, Vasily's character is like every other note, just me writing down how fucking funny he is throughout the movie. So far and away, my favorite character. Oh my God. He was amazing. <laughs> these hairy chimps in, 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 in lab coats are stealing my father's brain to give to the Americans. <laughs> uh, and just like him coming in, popping off with the gun, just going crazy. Just uh, immediately. Oh. Just every scene he was in immediately took it over for me. <laughs> the, fact, the fact that they coordinated um, when the plane would fly over to interrupt his speech. <laughs> That was amazing. Oh, it's so good. I, I, like that that level shit, man. Oh my god, it was amazing. Uh, also, like the whole the whole thing about how he's trying to keep secret that he let the entire Russian <laughs> hockey team die. <laughs> it's so and good. And then immediately, when it's you know a factor again, Barry is just like, "Yeah, I know about the hockey team. How do I not know about the hockey team? Come on." Uh, so. so uh again we can we can keep going with the little stuff just uh, because there's so much of it so instead i want to pivot i I guess you know move towards a slight wrapping up of things um i want to pivot to the final like act i guess although it's a pretty short segment of the film when it gets serious you know Mm -hmm. like the last 10 minutes of the movie when they get ready to and then do kill bar uh berea not really funny no at no. all there's there, there's like um i think one quick joke in there from the um uh the head of the army whose name i forget um uh jonathan after, isaacs jonathan isaacs right after right after they kill berea but like that whole like 
pulling him into the bathroom thing outside of Michael Palin's shit joke. Um, <laughs> I'm gonna go drop a Quebec. Um, but like, especially when you see like Berea, who's been wheeling and dealing, like he's been running the show behind the scenes for the entirety of this film, begging not to be shot, like begging. It's not funny, and I like it's a. I think it's a really nice way to end the film or not nice way. I think it's a very effective way to end the film, but it is very harshly juxtaposed to the previous hour and a half of it. Mm-hmm. Huge tonal shift. What'd you think of it? Um, I don't want to say I didn't care for it because I thought it was still well done. Um, I, it wasn't my favorite part of the film because, you know, I'm there for comedy and that's, you know what I've been sitting through for an hour and a half, but I still enjoyed how well it was done, and I did find it satis you know satisfying to watch, and that's really for what it was and what it did. I feel like that's a pretty fair compliment uh, towards the quality of that final segment, that final act. Yeah, this is supposed to be I I I would think um a representation of who Beria Beria I was getting this wrong. Beria is catching up to him. You know, he's been the guy that's been doing this, like mainly him. Two other people. You know, he's been the guy that's had them pulled out of whatever their realm typically is, pulled into something like a barn read off a very haphazardly written reason for why you are about to be killed and then very, very unceremoniously being killed. Mm-hmm. And he's been the orchestrator of a bunch of these types of killings of, of uh, people being thrown in gulags and other such types of camps and whatnot. Um, and it was him kind of getting a just desserts, which certainly you can make the point of most of these people getting a similar treatment because uh, there's no really no winners in that bunch. But uh, it's also meant to show just the brutality of what this is all about. You get a small, you get glimpses of where the brutality is in this film. You know, there's a scene of Berea like just decking a dude and who's tied up in a chair and telling uh, a, a soldier who comes in, ah, don't worry about him. His ears are full of blood. Like that's rough. Um, but it, it, I think that last note that this film leaves you on is one of like, this shit was all jokes because these people are ridiculous, but everything they're talking about is very serious and they mm-hmm. are bad people who do terrible things and then burn you in the street. Yeah, it's one of those, it was a very sobering end to the film that. You know, again, I I don't know if that's what I usually like when I watch comedies, um, but with how lightly they treaded on or how lightly they treated the rest of this seemingly very somber topic, uh, you know, of the death of Joseph Stalin, I I thought it was uh, a nice balancing point to some degree. What would the comedic ending of this movie look like? Um, Stalin waking up. <laughs> like, well, like, with, honestly, like, with his scalp like, open? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Like, genuinely, just, like, something happening where, like, everything goes back to square one because 
all of this was for nothing or something like that. I don't know. I haven't looked it up, so I don't know like what is historically accurate to the film. I'm hoping it's most of it because that would make the jokes even better. Um, but I would like to know what happened next uh, in, in terms of actual Russian history to make a joke based on that. But if not that, then uh, I don't know. Maybe Jeffrey Tambor taking off his clearly a wig. <laughs> uh, so I did look this up. Uh, not everything, but you know the major points. and. It, you know what? It was pretty, pretty damn close. You know, the the large plot points throughout this, you know, the large moves were definitely based off of actual events in history. Um, and then Steve Buscemi's character was, you know, the uh, I want to say it was the prime minister. I don't remember the exact title of what it was back in the USSR, but he was the leader for a good chunk of time until, you know, natural course of things happened and he was removed and replaced speaking of things that happened um the 1950 plane crash in uh sverdlovsk that killed all 19 on board uh ussr hockey players did in fact happen and vasily stalin did in fact downplay the seriousness of the crash and recruit replacements <laughs> um Jason Isaacs wears fewer medals than real-life Georgi, uh, Georgi Kanstinovich Zukov because Armando Inucci thought the real number of medals was too ridiculous. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, Stalin was apparently a crazy alcoholic. Sorry, Vasily Stalin was apparently an alcoholic, just as it mentions in the film, that uh, ended up killing him by the age of 40. Wow. Yeah. That's serious alcoholism. Yeah. Ain't that some fucking shit? Um, yeah, there's a bunch more. This, this looks to be fairly fairly um, accurate, which, again, doesn't surprise me, given uh, who Armando Iannucci is. But, <laughs> yeah. Any uh, other thoughts on this? I will say, as much as we both love this, it's definitely not everyone's cup of tea. Um, the first time I attempted watching this, I watched it with my roommates and they, all three of them asked me to change it at some point because they just were not about the humor, the style of humor, which is what it is. But, uh, we both enjoyed it. We both, I assume strongly recommend it. Um, yeah, you have, you have to be a fan of dialogue to like this movie. Yeah. And uh, as much as having, yeah. I guess, a context for the time period might help. I know I don't have one, uh, or maybe like a general enjoyment of history might help. Um, mm. I don't think you really need it. Which we both have. Yeah, but I don't. I don't think you need it for this. I mean, no. it's it's mostly about how these again these people are ridiculous. Mm -hmm. But all right, what would you uh, what would you rate it, friend? I'm a little torn. Um, I think, like, I feel like. My my brain is telling me to give it three and a half stars, but I feel like that's not quite just. So I'm going to give it four. I've been having the same internal debate since I asked the question. So since you gave it four, I will also give it. Four. Nice. Yeah, I was. Uh, with we're seemingly page. on the same page throughout most of this. So yeah, I think so. I I think we've got pretty similar sentimentalities about a uh, about about films here, friend. Oh, who would have thought? 
Um, uh, we will make our picks for next Monday by the Thursday episodes. So we can announce them then. Um, Corwin, do you have any other thoughts about anything? Um, have you seen the sequel to The Shining, Doctor Sleep? I have. It came out this past year. Uh, I haven't, and kind of just found out about it. What do you think? Do not watch it. It's not good. Okay. We'll I saw it in theaters, um, and boy, is it disappointing. <laughs> really? Okay. Yeah, it's just not good. I saw Ewan McGregor was the headliner, and that got me excited. So I will shut down all uh, all hype after that. Yeah, no. I mean, if you find it somewhere for free and you want to like check it out, sure. But uh, I'll tell you, it is nice for one thing. Um, at some point in the movie, Elder Jack Torrance or um, Danny Torrance has to go back to the Overlook Hotel because in this universe, the Overlook Hotel didn't blow burn up. Um, yeah, burn down. So he has to venture back there. And the shots they use of Danny going back to the Overlook, which is now abandoned, um, is actually all the exact same shots that they use at the very beginning of The Shining. I like that. Just color graded um, to fit the color grading of the of, of uh, Doctor Sleep. I I can appreciate that quite a lot. Yeah, it was really actually quite cool to see, uh, and they used some of the other footage from the original film as well for some scenes while they were um, at the hotel. So right. yeah, it was cool for that, but outside of that, it's it's just not good, man. Out of five, I give it one. <laughs> That's not good. It's that not very good. Much not good. No. All right. I have no idea what I'm going to pick for next week, so I'm definitely going to have to think long and hard. Yeah. Uh, also, um, for anyone uh, who who enjoys movies, um, Amazon Prime has been is now offering films that uh, either would have been currently in theaters right now since all theaters are closed, or that would have very recently departed from the theaters so they have very very current movies available for rent um which i'm debating maybe picking one of those just for uh like a modern film um if uh if one of us does then that's where you'd be able to find it films that would have been in theaters are currently renting on amazon for like 20 bucks films that would have just left theaters being rented out right now for six um my girlfriend and i just watched just mercy the other day which was not very good but um is is recent so uh if anyone else is looking for more stuff to watch that's a really good resource that's available right now neat neat indeed uh that's all i got all right well if you want to follow the show on twitter you can do so at juicing pot and if you want to hit us up via email, you can do so at juicethenumbers at gmail.com. And until Thursday, y'all have a good one. Bye.